Hello, Writers Panel listeners. This is Brett, the producer, checking in again to let you know a very important announcement, which is that Ben will be at the world-famous San Diego Comic-Con, taking place July 19th to the 22nd. He is making a bunch of appearances related to his new Vertigo Comics book, Hexwives. You know, the one he won't stop talking about, right? First, on Thursday, from 2 to 3 p.m., Blacker and his writing partner, Ben Acker, will be signing anything. It says anything. You bring them at the Boom Studios booth number 2229. And just between us, please stop by. It's embarrassing for Ben if you don't. Then, on Friday, July 20th, from 5 to 6 p.m., Ben is putting on a pop culture witches panel. In an age where powerful women are finally being celebrated, it's worth looking at the pop culture witches, enchantresses, genies, charmers, and sorceresses who conjured the craft in our popular imaginations in the past. How have women with superpowers been portrayed, and how is that portrayal evolving? Panelists include Nell Scoville, creator of the Sabrina the Teenage Witch TV show from the 90s, Jessica O'Toole and Amy Rardin, the creators and showrunners of the CW's Charmed reboot, Ruth Connell, who has played the witch Rowena on many episodes of Supernatural, and Juliana Crouch, who is an actual practicing witch. That is an amazing lineup, and by doing just a small amount of internet research, I was able to find that that panel is taking place in room 23ABC. Directly after that, Ben will run over to the Vertigo Comics panel, and you should too, although you won't have to run far because it's also taking place in room 23ABC per the internet. He'll be there with his Hexwives artist, Mirka Andolfo, as well as a bunch of other creators of the new Vertigo line, including video game developer and programmer Zoe Quinn, Nine Inch Nails art director Rob Sheridan, and lots more. You'll see previews of the new books, which launch in September, and it should be a really interesting conversation. Finally, on Sunday at 10 a.m., Ben is part of the How to Be a Nerd for a Living panel, very essential information, talking about what it takes to create a path to the career you want in comics, TV, podcasting, animation, gaming, and more. The other panelists include Travis McElroy of the Adventure Zone podcast and the My Brother, My Brother and Me podcast, very nice guy, Susan Eisenberg, the voice of Wonder Woman in a lot of the DC animated movies and shows, amazing, and Tommy Adeyemi, author of Children of Blood and Bone, and more. So follow Ben on Twitter, at Ben Blacker, for all the latest updates on his appearances at San Diego Comic-Con, and check the SDCC website and app for where these panels are happening. All right, on with the show. Forever Dog. Today's episode is a good one for a change. I feel like I almost never say that. No, today's episode really is a good one. Uh, I have been currently obsessed with The Good Wife. Um, I only started watching it because you guys asked me to get Robert and Michelle King, who created The Good Wife and The Good Fight, on the show. And uh, when I booked them, it was about two weeks before I was going to talk to them. So I was like, I better watch a whole bunch of Good Wife. And now it is a month later and I'm still watching the show. It is so good. Did you know this thing happens halfway through season five? That somehow was not spoiled to me, but a major character leaves the show. I didn't know this happened. And I watched it just recently, five, six years after it aired, and was floored. 
And I texted the people I know who wrote on that show and I could not believe they did that to that character. And they were like, yeah, that was six years ago. Everybody knows about that. Anyway, Robert King and Michelle King are on the podcast today. It's a good conversation about The Good Wife, The Good Fight, both shows, which if you haven't watched them, check them out. Before any of that, I've teased for the past six months that I have some projects to announce, and I'm excited to finally get to announce one of them. It's called Hexwives. It's a new comic book from Vertigo Comics. Vertigo, of course, was the home 25 years ago of Sandman and Preacher and Fables and like these great creator-owned books that for many of us uh, were inspirational and aspirational. Like these were big stories being told in the comic book format, which is a unique storytelling mode. Um, and I'm finding that more and more with Hexwives. So here's what's happening. Um, Hexwives is... The pitch is, what if Samantha Stevens from Bewitched uh, were not a suburban housewife by choice? Uh, she has all of this power, and she's here cooking dinner and cleaning for her husband. Uh, so what happens when she starts to realize that that is not who she is? In fact, she's a sort of immortal witch, part of a, the head of a powerful coven, who are her neighbors, um, and who are all sort of starting to wake up and realize that, indeed, they are stronger together. Uh, that's the pitch, and Vertigo has been so amazing in their support of this book. They are an absolute pleasure to work with. Hexwives is part of a big relaunch of Vertigo Comics, uh, which will all be happening in the fall, but we'll be talking about it at Comic-Con, and we'll start to leak stuff out in the next few months. Um, and this relaunch is really cool and exciting. Uh, they have seven new books. They're all these really smart, high-concept books uh, from writers like Eric Esquivel and Brian Hill and Zoe Quinn, um, who, you know, the like the famous gamer, and um, Rob Sheridan, who is the art director for Nine Inch Nails, um, Tina Horn, who is the host and producer of Why Are People Into That? podcast. Uh, it's a sex advice podcast. Uh, she's a sex activist and educator. So it's all a bunch of like really interesting people with strong points of view with things to say. And I'm lucky just to be part of this hanging on for dear life and hoping they don't realize that I'm just a television hack. They're all really smart and contemporary feeling books. They're all they all feel like books that the creators of them were compelled to write. Um, Go to vertigocomics.com, check out the descriptions of these books, because they're all really cool. On Hexwives, uh, it was important to me to be, if not the only male voice, sort of in the minority. This is a book about women, and this is a book about powerful women. And it was important to me to not only get that right, but you know, to have input that is not just my own ideas. And in fact, I got really lucky uh, in that when I told this to Vertigo, they were more than amenable. Uh, I wound up with these really amazing editors, Molly Mahan and Maggie Howell, who are uh, everything good in the book comes from them. Like, I'm going to be saying this for the next year and a half about how all of my collaborators are making this book great, but it's really true. And I'm not being humble about this. I actually feel bad about it. I wish I had more great ideas in the book, uh, but I came up with the premise, so I have to write it. Um, but Molly and Maggie have been instrumental in get, making this right, getting this right, uh, making this a book that feels emotionally true and honest. Uh, part of the book is about 
the insidious ways in which men control women. And so the other key collaborator of there, of which there are many uh, on this book has been my wife where, uh, you know, she's been with me on this journey and I wander into the room. And I'm like, hey, tell me, tell me the terrible ways I try to control you. Uh, and she tells me and I learned something both for the book and for my life. Um, the artist on the book is Mirka Andalfo, who is this incredible Italian artist. She worked on Shade the Changing Man, uh, the annual. That's out there. You should check it out. She worked on the DC Bombshells books, and she hasn't done a regular book like this um, yet in her career. And I think this is going to be a huge coming out for her. Uh, she's just knocking it out of the park. And the colorist, Marissa Louise, I cannot say enough good things about. Um, as good as... Mirka is, and as okay as I am, Marissa is just elevating every single thing with her colors. She's adding texture and shading to this book, which, you know, could have been a blunt instrument, and she's giving it a lot of depth and a lot of soul. Uh, I, I'm excited for you to see her work on this book. Uh, I also have to say, this is terrifying for me. This is the first writing I've done, the first professional writing I've done without my writing partner, Ben Acker, in 15 years. And uh, Ben, when I came to him with this and said, do you want to do this? He said, I'm glad to, but it seems like you got it. So if you want me on it, I'm fine. If not, try it. Uh, so I have to thank him for that. And uh, at one point, he checked in with me on the book and said, how's it going? And I said, it's really hard. And he said, well, sure, it should be two times as hard. And that is not the case. It is 100 times as hard. Uh, you know, not having been there, again, we've been working together for 15 years. He has the answers. He is a guy with amazing ideas. And my job with him is just to pick out the good one. On this book, I have to come up with the good ideas. Uh, so I'm lucky to have the collaborators that I have to help me through that process. Um, the book will be out in October. Uh, I'm going to talk about it incessantly. It is about witches. Uh, I'm obsessed with pop culture witches. Bewitched was one of my favorite television shows growing up, not just because I had a huge crush on Elizabeth Montgomery. Uh, but Andorra is a great character. Um, but pop culture witches are so interesting to me because they, they're no, they, like there are set tropes for a witch, but we don't, it's not like Frankenstein, right? There's no one story. And so, Every witch story sort of adds to the tropes of that, um, whether it's the witches of Eastwick or Wizard of Oz or Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Like every take on witches plays with the existing tropes and adds something new to it. So one, I'll be doing a panel at San Diego Comic-Con called Pop Culture Witches, and I'll tell you more about that as we get closer to it. Two, on this podcast, I'm going to start interviewing People involved with pop culture witches. Um, I love to hear about how people approach the witch character, witch tropes, witch stories. Uh, so I'm going to be tracking down people who have worked in that uh, area and just doing short interviews with them. I hope it's interesting to you. It's certainly interesting to me. I've been lucky that you've indulged me this long uh, on the Writers Panel podcast. But I'll say this. If you love a pop culture witch, if you have someone that you think I should talk to about pop culture witches, um, if you are a practicing Wiccan, hit me up. Uh, I'm fascinated to talk to you. Uh, find me on Twitter at Ben Blacker. It's like the color, only more so. 
or find the uh, write me on Facebook, facebook.com slash TV writers panel. Uh, and tell me who I should talk to. What are the pop culture witches that you love? Um, what do you think about witch tropes? And if you're an artist, and I know we haven't put out any images yet, I want to see what you think this book is going to be. Uh, put out some Hexwives fan art. Uh, I'd really like to get sort of underrepresented or unknown artists involved in this book, and fan art is a great way to get noticed. Um, look, I have a hundred issues of Hexwives stories that I want to tell. I'm counting on you guys to buy the book so that I get to tell those stories. But um, please know that it, it really is a, a story I'm passionate about telling, and I hope you'll get on, involved with it. Again, you'll be hearing more about it for the next eight months. <laughs> Sorry. Here's today's podcast. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh, yeah! We are at the ATX Television Festival, and finally, listeners, we're talking to Robert and Michelle King. Um, first of all, thanks for chatting. Second of all, I told you off microphones, I will tell you on microphones. I love The Good Wife, I love The Good Fight. I can't stop watching it. This is a maybe a dumb question, um, but for those of us who make TV, I think it's, you know, what's the secret sauce? How do we make an addictive show like you guys do? You're very nice, first of all. Michelle, what is your secret sauce? Uh, it doesn't hurt to cast spectacular <laughs> actors. And so we've been very fortunate in that regard. You know, starting with Juliana Margulies on The Good Wife, and then Christine Baranski, Char Josh Charles, Kush Jumbo, Rose Leslie. I mean, this is a magnificent group. We're, we benefit from the fact that we film in New York, mm -hmm. so we have access to a lot of spectacular theater actors. Yeah, yeah, and that is something, it's a little something extra, right, that we don't always get in Los Angeles. Right. Um, let's go back to the beginning of that show specifically and talk about... Uh, the the inception, the beginning of the show. Where did it come from? What were you each doing at the time? Were you writing together at the time? We were writing together. Okay. We had just, everybody probably knows the writer's strike in 2008. We had just come through the writer's strike and we're broke. <laughs> we were first majored out of deals at ABC. Uh, oh my God, it was a nightmare time. Uh, we were thinking we were going to sell our car, and which is like the equivalent of death in L.A. Um, right. And then uh, uh, we had seen not just Silda Spitzer standing beside her husband, Elliot Spitzer, during his scandal, but also there were other wives next to televangelists who had gotten massages. And there were three or four Dick Morris's wife. It was and it always felt really a hypocritical and detrimental to a marriage to force your spouse to be scandalized the way you are. Mm -hmm. When you as a man should really take it upon yourself to stand up there. So all we could imagine is what would happen afterwards. And not only that, just coincidentally, a number of those women were also attorneys. Mm -hmm. Like Silda yeah. Spitzer, like Dick Morris's wife, like Hillary Clinton. And so there's a pattern and there's a series. Interesting. And the other yeah. more cynical aspect of it, we do did know networks needed 
to fill certain genres. Mm -hmm. They feel that genres are evergreens, like law shows, doctor shows, cop shows. And it always felt like if you were going to do one of those, how can you add that extra something that makes you respect yourself in the morning? Mm -hmm. And I think the show came at an interesting time where, you know, cable, these cable prestige shows were sort of coming in and you were doing this amazing blend of stuff we'd seen on network, the sort of traditional lawyer show, um, in addition to the serialized drama, the prestige serialized drama that we're doing, was this, you know, the DNA of your writing? Is this the, just the stuff that you both are interested in? Or was it a sort of concerted effort to do something a little different? It was mainly the stuff that we were fascinated mm -hmm. in. And we also had heard complaints from actors that a lot of the shows that were on network were puzzle solvers. Mm -hmm. And they were really about complex plotting but not about complex characters. Interesting. It is kind of amazing how much the the business of TV, anyway, has changed over when we started that. I mean, we made the pilot in 2009, I think. Or was it 2000? Yeah, nine. Mm -hmm. And um, just the introduction of streaming. I mean, all those have changed the business so much. At that time, it was odd that a show that had some kind of case of the week framework would still go that extra mile. Mm -hmm. I mean, it wasn't a new, it wasn't unheard of, but it, it was just kind of not what CBS did. Yeah, it wasn't what people were doing. I mean, it reminds me more than anything else of something like NYPD Blue, where right. both the case of the week is compelling and the drama is compelling, and you get these amazing actors to elevate everything. Uh, like, so it, it's a pleasurable watch top to bottom. Um, what was, I want to go way back and sort of talk about the stuff that you were interested in early on, like, why write? What made you say, <laughs> someone wrote this thing, that's something I'd like to do? Do you remember? For me, it was features. I mean, I was aware of, t I mean, I liked TV. I wasn't obsessed with it. I loved Dick Van Dyke show and reruns. You know, it was that kind of thing. But I wanted to write movies and did and started in movies. And then when Michelle and I started writing together, we were approached by a director who wanted who I'd already made a movie with, who wanted to flip over into TV because he thought that was more promising. And this was before, obviously, peak TV right. was a gleam in anybody's eye. I think it was before Sopranos. So we kind oh, wow. of decided to make features, one side of what we did in TV, another. And once we got a taste of television, there was not any going back because you just have so much more control and the length of storytelling is really appealing. Yeah. Um, but if you're yeah. asking in general about writing, I mean, I think we were all moved by the 70s movies that maybe we didn't see in the theater at the time. But The Godfather, you know, Three Days of the Condor, All the President's yeah. Men, The Candidate, all those movies were just felt like they did something more yeah. and engaged in pop art. I mean, what you can't do sometimes with novels or theater, or it's harder to do, is engage with a larger audience all at once. And I like there's something gritty about genre work. There's something kind of pulpy in the best way in my mind when you're trying to engage an audience with thrills or killings or suspense or comedy jokes, and yet you're still trying to do something more. Yeah. you're. I mean, I think that's something that you both have done very well over... 11 years, 10 years uh, on the series we've seen where you're getting these very real characters, but you get to sort of push the parameters of that pulpiness. If you get to have a, a fun crime or a fun story or act out in court or whatever it is. 
It seems like your best bet to avoid pretension is to stick inside a genre. That's a great way to put it. Uh, Michelle, what was your writing background uh, prior to the stuff we know you from? Uh, it was really a development background. I oh, worked yeah. reading scripts. That's how I started out. And then uh, wrote some features, and then, but things didn't get interesting until Robert and I started writing together. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about that. Uh, there's two parts to it. One of which is writing when you're not being produced. Mm -hmm. And the other part is when you're writing and you're show running. Yeah. Um, do you want to handle, uh, I'll handle it first, you handle the <laughs> show run. It's a really big job and it can take over your life or frankly it does take over your life. And I think it would be horrible to try to do it on your own. And I don't understand frankly how people do it on their own. Yeah. And to have a spouse that was completely disconnected would be difficult because you wouldn't have enough time to spend with them. And I think it would be difficult to force yourself to focus on things that had nothing to do with your work. It's interesting. And prior to being produced, I do think it's very, I mean, you probably find this where we're working with your partner. A, you, have, you bring in different interests and it's important to have that Socratic method about storytelling. Uh, with TV, it's even more important because there's so much of it, so much storytelling you have to do. And I would say that Michelle's better with structure, I might be better with dialogue, and I think those two interests kind of match. Mm -hmm. And then, so knowing that, and sort of, it's interesting knowing your strengths coming into that, and I'm sure, you know, as you work together over the years, everything starts to overlap, but when you first put a room together, how did you take to a room having worked just with each other? It's the best it's a uh, dream yeah no it's yeah. spectacular because first of all you're reading dozens but probably more writing samples so you're finding the scripts that impress you the most then you're meeting with all these writers so you know that someone is really smart and witty and interesting and then you get to bring six to eight of those people in a room yeah and talk about a story you all want to tell together. I mean, it really is, yeah. when it's going well, nothing is better. It's, it's a difficult, lonely process writing for features. Mm -hmm. And you're always fired. You know, it's <laughs> just, uh, it's, you know, uh, TV, and I imagine it's one of the reasons why TV rooms are creeping now into features, mm -hmm. is um, when it's done well, it's a very honest way to tell story because you're not convincing yourself or your writing partner that this will work. You're really having to sell it to a group of people. And when that is done with genuine interest and shared interest, it actually, I think, improves the product immensely. Yeah. It makes complete sense to me that features would go this route. Were you uh, comfortable? Like, what was the room dynamic with two of you? And then once production started as well, did you divvy up uh, responsibilities? Did it come naturally? It does come naturally. I mean, we just, we tend to take care of different things, which works out fine. I mean, I would say that you do casting more. A little uh, more. You do definitely wardrobe. And the legal department. Design. And you're dealing with editorial and run the room. I do the tone meetings, mm -hmm. uh, run the room. And, you know, it's a... It, it is a two-person job. I don't know how, like, a Ryan Murphy or Shonda does it. Because yeah. I... And, and folks that have more than one show, I right. really don't understand that. I'd have to follow them around to get it. 
because we're only doing 13 episodes a year now it still is takes over your life let's let's talk about doing 22 episodes <laughs> a year like you guys you were one of the last shows that did that nobody really does that anymore um, but it's also the TV that we grew up with, right? We're used to that that format. Um, was there, what did you have going in? Like, I'm curious about the pitch process for Good Wife and then what you knew coming in and then what you brought, what you needed the writers to bring as well. So it's a big question, but let's, you know, break it apart. <laughs> well, one thing we needed from the writers was legal expertise because okay. neither Robert nor I are attorneys. Mm -hmm. And uh, in addition to having a, a lawyer on call as a consultant, a, an Illinois attorney. Um, we, every season had at least two writers who were also oh, wow. lawyers and some seasons three. Was that an easy slot to fill? Was that an easy person to find? Uh, there are a fair number of those people. All right. Yeah, not as hard as I thought it would be. Yeah. There does seem to be a lot of people who are sick of being in law firms. <laughs> and want to go be in a writer's room. I would say the other angle we got from other writers is there's a the procedural aspect of it can be very hard because it's finding twists mm -hmm. that kind of almost are standalone set pieces. And the difficulty is there's so much case-oriented TV that everybody's after the same twist. Sure. So everybody's reading the same news at the same time. So you know that if it's on our show, it's probably on CSI or... Mm -hmm. And so having original writers who spend their lives kind of thinking in terms of the new twist based on, and that's one of the reasons we pursue technology so much on the mm -hmm. show, is there didn't seem to be many shows that were diving in head first into the way technology was changing weekly, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and that seemed to be a way to find twists. The other part of your story, 22 a year. Uh, 22 a year is, we're look back, not sure. I heard Damon Lindehoff say this. He looks back and can't even imagine how he did. I, the same thing here. I mean, it, it is, it takes over your life. You have three weeks off a year. Uh, well, one more uh, week off at Christmas. And it is, it is the office. It is the job. And it's difficult when you want to do it well. Mm -hmm. um, if you're doing a supervisory or a journeyman or woman show running job, I'm mad you can keep it in its place, but if it's all involving, it's it's pretty amazing difficult. And that's when you need it to rely on a writer's room even more, because you might have to be in editorial, Michelle might have to be in casting. Yeah. On a first season show, there's so much figuring out, whether it's 22 or whether it's 11 or whether it's three episodes, you have to figure out that show, no matter how much you're armed with coming in. I'm curious to hear about that process of discovering what this show is and could be. It was tough because we didn't know what the show was. The network didn't know what the show was and they didn't know us. Yeah. And so that's, it's a lot more difficult than say walking in now. Right. If we've been working with them for 10 years, they're gonna have a little more faith that we'll figure it out. Mm -hmm. There's already a dialogue. Yeah. We, we start every season by walking about 20 miles with David Zucker, who's a great executive at Scott Free's company. He's Ridley Scott's TV guy. And what we would use that time is to pitch ourselves ideas and to have this conversation, again, Socratic, trying to find out what the show is and not starting from some abstract place, but starting from very specific. Mm -hmm. I think we work best when it's very concrete 
discussion about concrete thoughts. I mean, you know, characters that are concrete, stories, and then moving out from there to what theme is and what the tone is. Would you agree? Yeah. Uh, and did you look for, I imagine in those conversations you came to, what is the unifying theme of this season? Uh, what, what sort of stories are we looking to tell and how is it different to the past? And also just arcing storylines. Mm -hmm. So you'd go so far as to sort of find those tentpole. Yeah, but more than more than theme. We during those season starting conversations, it would really be more about plot and character. And it was very important to go into a writers' room knowing what those tentpoles were, mm -hmm. so that even now more so with thirteen a year, but twenty two a year, you needed some strong sense. So the writers' room a would have something to write, agree on, because the worst thing is to. Uh, go to the writers' room and say, "Well, okay, we're open to ideas. What do you want to do?" You had to go in with some specifics. Absolutely. I, I'd like to hear. This is a, a slight detour, but about the the physical process of writing for both of you. And do you like writing? How do you do it when you're on script? Well, first of all, Robert gallops ahead. Is that right? I yes, we're probably uh, the biggest. The writer, the scripts really rely on the room. Because it's about the build more than anything. The build, probably not as extreme as like Gilmore Girls, which I heard they beat out every single beat. And now with uh, Miss Maisel, I'm sure it's the same thing. I th we're not as specific as that. But the story rises or falls. I mean, we're constantly ripping it apart and putting it mm -hmm. back together. Then Michelle and I go away and kind of look at the pop beats and make sure they hold up. And often... I mean, we're bad showrunners in this sense. We're always going back into the room and saying, what sounded good last week doesn't sound good now, unfortunately. But it happens. Let's, and it happens, and it's. I don't think scripts are like hamburgers. I mean, <laughs> there is a little bit of trial and error. Like, yeah. what is this? And also, you'll think, well, that sounded good, but now it's really preachy. Our problem is when something goes preachy. And then Michelle and I will re-break it ourselves and then go back in the room. Oh, interesting. So you feel like you get the more honed version when it's just the two of you. I would say on some scripts, it's very important. Whenever we have problems, now we're talking to each other. Yeah. When we're you should talk to each other. We take it away and kind of, okay, what is the problem? Right. Why right. Is it and not then joke? it's just the time of panic as much as anything else. <laughs> yeah. But it does become easier to bear down. I mean, you are on the same page. You have a like sensibility. So I would imagine, you know, the room can be used for so many things from idea generation to building. But, you know, it's your show ultimately. You, you and you're going to get best. blamed or credited. <laughs> sure. I, I think also sometimes you'll think that, you know, there was a good idea that would. You know, like a pinata, have all these treats in it, and then when you actually are whacking at it, it's like, oh my god, this kind of empty. Yeah. Uh, sure. And so it's, yeah, the writers' room is so kind to us because when we go and say, okay, here's a problem. One of it is casting. We lost this actor because that's yeah. a lot of our happens problems. all the time. Um, and the actors aren't interchangeable because they have voices, and you know, suddenly you don't get Fisher Stevens. You can't plug in Jerry Adler, right? Because those are very specific. So anyway, that's one of it. And then we usually use that as a way to say, and we hate now the idea. Let's go in this direction. And you always have some ideas in reserve that hopefully you can plug in. Well, there's also on, on both of your, on all of your shows, really, I, I liked Braindead a lot too, is there, there's a, a cleverness uh, without sounding trite. You know what I mean? Like there's, the show is a little ahead of the audience. And I think you want to maintain that. And that's a thing that you can only get by really bearing down on these scripts and, 
going hard at them, asking questions about them. Was Were there, uh, over the years on any of these shows, um, I'm curious to hear about wrong turns, whether it was in the development of the show or whether it was when you got in the room and you were up and running, things that you had to sort of put the brakes on and readjust, uh, bigger than a script, more story turns. <laughs> you know which one I'm going to. <laughs> Here's what I will say. When we have gone wrong, it's never that I thought we were taking a risk. Interesting. It, it, it completely ambushed me. So there have been plenty of times where I thought to myself, oh, are we going to get away with this? And it'll go just fine. No one blinks. It's successful. And then things can go terribly wrong. And it's not that I thought we were going out on a limb. Uh, well, no. the one is Kalinda's husband in season four of Good Wife. Look, you Did know we... I'm not there yet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, you know, we, as Michelle said, it did not seem like a stretch that Kalinda was best when she was made vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And we didn't know that much about her. And to see something from her home life seemed like an interesting way to go. Mm -hmm. I think one of the problems we ran to is we were pursuing theme over character. Interesting. And... Um, in theme, we thought it was interesting how someone that basically she was a mirror of what was going on with Juliana Margulies' character mm -hmm. with her husband. And I think that was a mistake because there's a James Bond again aspect or a Tomb Raider aspect. Yeah. She was, not, you know, you don't want to know that Tomb Raider has a, you know, who's going to wash the dishes tonight from, you <laughs> right. know. And I think that was part of it. So we really, the writer's room, we all struggled with it because we'd written five or six episodes ahead sure. and we were shooting them uh, how to flip around because it was supposed to last the whole season how we could stop it before it kind of like Ivy or Weeds took over the whole show and by the way that had nothing to do with the actors sure, the actors were great yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Mark Warren and uh, Archie Punjabi were yeah. both fantastic it was truly a place where we felt so guilty because it felt like the writing was letting them down. And again, Michelle's exactly right. We did not no. see that. Felt like an. It seems like a natural, perfectly way natural to go. choice. It felt like it was, and uh, so it did not work for the audience. Huh. One Pretty thing, universally. One thing wow. where the writers, writing and writers room really help you with is humility. There's <laughs> nothing more humility inducing than trying to, and especially do 22. Yeah. Oh my God. Well, this is a thing I would imagine you had to contend with. It must have hit even harder when it came to The Good Fight, where you have this enormous fan base, these people who love the show. And you also have, so you have a responsibility to those people to create a high quality show. Uh, tell stories that you want to tell, but that they also want to see. Um, you also have a responsibility to these actors who are such a high quality, high talent actors. You want to deserve them, right? Yes, and that that's even more pressing. Yeah. Uh, so how do you contend with these responsibilities? How do you make sure that we're not letting anyone down? It's uh, a big question. Yeah, I, just speaking personally, I would say ignore them and do the best I can. Mm -hmm. I mean, that... That's it. I think anything else for me, I'd freeze. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I am very aware that we need to do the very best we can every single episode, but that's it. You know, and then it's yeah. just, yeah, that's the given and off you go. And the other thing is trying to give the actors something that they don't usually get. So we run in the opposite direction of 
like Nathan Lane was in his, a lot of our episodes mm-hmm. of Good Wife, and he had always been played as a version of the Birdcage character, and it always felt like, no, let's still pull away those usual crutches of those characters and play the comedy that he brings to everything, but as a, an accountant who is humorless, you know? And so I think that's, um, I think actors appreciate going in the opposite direction. And, and I think, you know, this is a real testament to the writing. And it's a thing that's come up a few times over the years, but I feel like we can't hit it hard enough, especially for new writers. Um, I remember we talked about it when I talked to the Justified folks that like these tertiary characters have to have lives of their own. Uh, was this something that, you know, comes easily to you? Was it a realization that you all had in the process? I don't know if it ever was a realization. It was just a given that you wanted to make everybody interesting. Yeah, you would think. Yeah. <laughs> And actually, when it became critical to talk about for us was when we were starting The Good Fight. Because then we could choose to set this new show wherever we wanted because we actually film in New York and double it for Chicago. So the question came up, all right, this new show with this new firm, should it be set in New York Mm -hmm. so that we can play New York for New York? And what we realized is if we did that, we couldn't justify seeing all these Chicago-based characters whom we'd grown to love. So we had to make a choice. And at the end of the day, it felt like, okay, these um, these Chicago-based characters were more important to us. That's really cool. Yeah, you've populated a world, right? Yeah. You want to continue to see these characters. And we do, which, you know, That's like great. Judge... You know, otherwise you the wouldn't see Judge Abernathy, Dennis yeah. O'Hare, or <laughs> so good. Yeah. And I would say the only thing we probably learned at the top was um, structurally, we wanted to avoid the way law shows usually did. Yeah. It, where the judge is an impartial observer uh, who decided yes, no, overruled, sustained. It felt more interesting to have the judge be this third dimension mm-hmm. that you had to work off the judge's biases and idiosyncratic and it's just in, uh, idiosyncrasies idiosyncrasies, yeah. idiosyncrasies. Yeah. and uh, and their own problems with you yeah. so that felt like I would just say the structural changes was something we learned fairly early on in I, The I, Good Wife I will say it never feels like uh, The Good Wife never feels like a law show that we've seen you know I grew up on LA Law right and we knew what those were and it right. has a similar thing where the cases were interesting and the lives were interesting but it was a pretty standard format I think you guys change that format in every episode uh, we don't see these long courtroom cases we get the good parts uh, was this a, a conscious decision is it something you fell into how did that start to well, it was to, not a conscious decision to step away from anything Stephen Bochco did because it, he is a master and, you know, one wants to lean into that, yeah. not away. Uh, but it was a conscious decision to structurally try to do every episode different from the other. And that becomes tough. What an incredible challenge. It you is. Know, that's but a puzzle. It is something that the writer's room struggles with is you not only need some case or what interests you, but what is the different way you're telling the story? Yeah. So is it two courts where two courts that are influencing each other? Is there, are we now in the jury room, but we're flashbacking back to what they're talking about, trying to decide what to do. Um, I would say though, what we probably most want to avoid is a lot of courtroom dramas tended to be 
about speeches that played into the morality of what was going on. And A, that didn't seem truthful to what courtroom was. Janet Malcolm has his wonderful books and uh, essays about the law is storytelling. The law is, and that felt more interesting to us because it made it much more of each episode being a bit more of a heist where uh, how do we trick the jury into loving our story and hating the opposition story? Or without a jury, is it that we're trying to show the other lawyer that they should not go to court and should pay up now because we're trying to prove how much better our case is? And that could be about using morality uh, very cynically, mm -hmm. or it could be about just game playing. And that felt more like chess moves and not so much the editorial page of the New York Times. Yeah, it, it also feels very honest. It feels, uh, you know, for as much as this can be soap, this can be drama, this can be, uh, you know, law tropes, it feels very honest. Something I loved, especially about that first season of Good Wife, and I think we see it again in The Good Fight, is these characters were blunt about this is a business. This is a yeah. money-making business. And I feel like we never saw that in TV before. Uh, talk to me a little bit about, you know, showing this as a business without it feeling like a boring business show. Well, it was always clear to us that our characters and our lawyers were pragmatists. Mm -hmm. And they need to pay the rent. They want to be thought well of as strategists. And it isn't going to be all about morality for them. Yeah. It's They're not crusaders. Right. It can't be. Yeah. Uh, to in order to run a successful business. Really and also it always felt more interesting to have it be Law's performance. That you're going up there and you really are playing a character. And there was there's an exhaustion factor with that too that was interesting. Whole idea that you know, we we told ourselves that this was the education of Alicia Florick, the good wife anyway. And that was that Alicia would start in one place about the law. And we come to learn what was really required. Mm -hmm. And what was required was a bit of it living a lie. And so that seems fascinating. I mean, everybody has an element of that. You put on one face for work, another face for a home. I mean, it is just how you work. Uh, and that, I think, is where people can relate. So it's not always about being sympathetic because sympathetic, many writers listening to this may think, oh, I have to give him a dog or her a dog. And I also have him to say, um, you know, this is the right thing. Or there's a wonderful movie, Sicario, mm -hmm. which is a. But one of the things I thought failed about it was I wanted the actress, the character, to be turned on by the violence you saw. Mm -hmm. Because when you watch it, you're turned on by all that violence and action. And, and that's just as moral of a decision because you don't need your characters to supply the morality of the show. The author supplies the morality of the show. Yeah, that's right. You know, I, I had this thought in watching both series. Uh, that and, and I'm curious to hear you know what you think of this, so I'll just throw it at you. Um, it struck me that The Good Wife could be a cynical show in a hopeful time. <laughs> and The Good Fight is, feels very much the opposite, a hopeful show in a cynical time. <laughs> That's a great quote. I, <laughs> well, you and I started this season saying that the show should be about hope. Right, and um, then we were unable to write that show. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah, we, I mean, our worry was there was a Trump saturation going on, mm -hmm. that people are watching so much Trump commentary in late night that we wanted to do a show that wasn't that. And then we dove in head first <laughs> like pigs in the mud. And the only thing that makes it hopeful probably is 
the arc of it with Christine. That and the fact that it's pretty clear to us that this group of people are family, Mm -hmm. you know, and they are, you know, despite their squabbles sticking together. Absolutely. I think that that is a hopeful thing. I mean, there's also great, even just in the first five minutes of the good fight, when, you know, first of all, you get your first swear, which is great. Uh, but nobody swears like Christine Baranski. <laughs> she's so good at it. But there's this feeling of, and coupled with the title, like she's not going to take this. These people stand for something, and and that's a different. It's a different feeling to the sort of often cynical view that uh, she, uh, her character, and Will had to have in The Good Wife, right, where they were often struggling to just survive. I believe uh, that's coming through despite ourselves, because um, I wonder if, if that's our reaction to the news is we're trying to find some happiness and some happy endings in that we just did a panel with David Simon who was talking about um, the difficulty with being optimistic today or doing happy ending shows is it's not honest to what's going on and it's not honest to how you make change which is in minimal ways uh, you know and it occurred to me, yes, and one of the ones he brought up was the candidate. And at the end of the candidate, Robert Redford uh, turns to his you know, campaign manager and says, what do I do now? The only thing I'd add to that, though, which is, I think, more reflective of what our attitude is, it still ends with Robert Redford winning, mm-hmm. which, in other words, it gives the audience that amount of happiness for the premise. And it yeah. still does a little bit of a cynical twist at the end in a good way that makes it real. But... It would be if Robert Redford lost, then what do I do now? It makes no sense. Right. So anyway, that's, I think, another way to handle it these days, which is there's hope in each episode, even though there's a bit of cynical twist on the end. Yeah, I don't think anyone does this job that doesn't have a real appetite for control. And so you want to feel like you're controlling something fictionally. Yeah. And that is allowing, in this case, mainly Diane, to regain her footing Hmm. to some degree. And that's, I guess, hopeful. uh, John, as you wrapped up The Good Wife, at what point did you know you would stay in this world? Well, not. We were hoping another showrunner was going to take it. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Um, And, And then things shifted and we ended up taking over mm-hmm. the show and uh so it was all a little unexpected oh that's really interesting yeah we didn't know until i guess august of last year mm-hmm. that we would be doing this um wow and and then you know and the show would have been more cynical if trump hadn't won because mm-hmm. there was a cynicism behind the premise there was a cynicism that this was a spin-off you know i you know people could tell you oh my heart's in my heart's in it but you know the good fight which was an echo of the good wife it just there was cynicism was on top and then trump won and so the show found a reason uh, a, a thematic reason and the good fight suddenly took on more kind of potential as a premise and as a title so you know when you thought you were walking away from this world um what was next i mean you you, you spend a long time with characters writing this world Exploring every corner of it, I'm sure over the season, over the series. For how many episodes do you guys wind up doing? A hundred and of Good of Wife, a hundred and fifty-six. Yeah, that's that's a long time to live with these characters and to be telling these stories. 
did you want to shake it off? Were you starting to poke around and look for new stories to tell? And what would that be? You know, I would say we're always looking at other stories and, and struck by other areas that seem fertile. Mm-hmm. One of the things that we liked in The Good Wife was pursuing religion in a way that it wasn't pursued on TV before. Uh, you know, except maybe the Americans. There wasn't a same sense of of an older generation was that was looking askance at a younger generation that might be drawn to religion in Grace, mm-hmm. in his character. And so one of the things we were pursuing is what's going on with Pope Francis now in the Catholic Church. So we had a, a project called Vatican City that we were pursuing, uh, which was this new pope hired the first female spokesperson for the Vatican, and it's her story. And so there was an element of, you know, good wife to it. I do think it's difficult because TV doesn't deal well with religion. It is seen as a divider. It is seen as, so even in the sense of Pope Francis, who is making moves on global warming that our country is backing away from, it's very difficult to pursue that. So that, and there was something, we're only doing very oddball premises. Girls with Guns, which was about the uh, ID, the Israeli Defense Forces, and how women are brought in, uh, are basically uh, drafted. Yeah, you know, at 18 years, which was a Gal Gadot kind of, you know, it's any. like summer camp with guns. Yeah, yeah, that's so, that's an interesting area. Yeah. It's worth pursuing. And uh, then we yeah. have something at Showtime oh, now right. with another uh, showrunner who yeah. will be running um, called Your Honor. Yeah, um, which again, you know, it's in the same basic milieu, but obviously different stories, you know. It's different. It's coming at it from a different direction. It's very different. It's more thrillery. Oh, interesting. Yeah, Um, and Your Honor is not the best title for it. It's the the Israeli format is called Your Honor. So, Is it Your Honor with an exclamation point? Not yet. (laughs) That'll be next, yes. Uh, (laughs) Let's let's, uh, go down an avenue and and talk about Braindead for a minute. Um, I really enjoyed this show. Uh, There's so much to like about it. Where did this come from? (laughs) It's a great premise. Will you just briefly just sort of pitch the premise for anyone who missed it? Uh, It takes place during the present day, which would have been last season. Um, Summer 2016. Mm -hmm. Um, And basically it focuses on a Senate aide. It's all about Congress. And she gets a job with her brother, who's a senator, and helps him in the office. She's the one who deals with complaints from constituents. And that's just the reality part of it. She <laughs> happens to get the job at the same time. There's a meteor that lands in Russia and this meteor breaks open and half of it's sent to America to study and out of it crawls these bugs look like ants. And these bugs crawl into the ears of politicians and eat out half the brain and make them very partisan. So it's invasion of the body snatchers crossed with uh, a political show, yeah. you know, with the West Wing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it seems like it is. It was too raw. It was too real <laughs> for 2016. Well, that was it. <laughs> is that right? It well, it was just. It was first of all, it's a very peculiar show for CBS. The tone I mean, was not CBS, but it no. was so great. Thank, <laughs> Thank you. you. <laughs> um, was I mean, that's a tough thing to pitch too. Like pitching a tone like that. They know you for something, right? They trust you now to make a show. And as you said, this sort of leans on a thing, uh, a pulp aspect of it, which means you get to sort of push it, but to have real characters. Um, 
do you pitch tone or do you just say, you'll see in the pilot? Well, we knew it was going to be politics plus horror. And I think we discovered the tone as we were going along. I don't think we entirely knew what it was going to be. Uh, Nina Tassler hooked us up with uh, Judy, Judy Smith, Smith. Mm-hmm. who is who Scandal is based on, a, mm-hmm. a fixer from DC. And um, she wanted to do something about politics, and we couldn't get our head around it because political shows, they, they turn into position papers. They mm-hmm. turn into, you know, or... Or into soap opera. Yeah. Right. And then... And, or the soap opera is being thrown in in big globs right. to avoid talking too much about, you know, budgets. <laughs> right. So it felt like Michelle and I were talking about it. This is another one where, uh, you know, I don't know how we can do cats. And then you realize how you can do cats. Um, <laughs> did you go for walks and talk yes, about it? Yes, I mean, that, I hear this all the time. Like, that's the yeah, best way to hash stuff did. out. We did. I do it too. And it just, right around that time, the there was a budget impasse that closed down the government. Mm-hmm. And it felt like one of those moves that had no strategic advantage to anyone. And least of all the Republicans. So it really felt like it was coming out of partisanship and nothing else. And that made us think in terms of invasion of the body snatchers, that it might be a good way to do politics. It, yeah, there was no explanation so we could invent one. <laughs> right. So we sent over to CBS saying the only political thing we could imagine doing is a horror movie, horror TV show, serialized that is basically Roger Corman meets Patty Chesky. You know, it's <laughs> a, a great trying to do a stupid show that actually is smart underneath it. Yeah, and the part of it is our interest in being unpretentious because there's a lot of TV shows that are stupid shows pretending to be smart. So this would be <laughs> just. <laughs> Well, this be commercial. Uh, But it's also very funny. I mean, I think that may have been, as much as there is humor in The Good Wife and in in The Good Fight, I think that may have been unexpected for people. Yeah. Was it baked in? Does it come from the premise? Or again, was it sort of discovered? Yeah, it was baked in. I would imagine. Yeah. You're not going to do a a serious show about alien bugs taking over Congress. You think they wouldn't try? (laughs) CBS had a lot of trust in us, probably misguided at that point. But they had a lot of trust, which allows you to experiment. So we, I I hate recaps because I think they are idiots. Uh, They're ugly, they're put at the front of the show. And so we got a friend, Jonathan Colton, to do these songs that recapped each episode. So there was a real sense of all bets are off. Let's do what we want. Let's have the comedy want. We did an episode that was about uh, America's creeping into torture. Mm -hmm. Um, We did an episode that just used the monkey song. Oh, no, no. The Partridge Family song. What is it? Uh, Anyway, there was it was just uh, we it was kind of throw it at the wall and make it stick. I mean, why not take a big swing when you get that opportunity, right? Did you feel, uh, you know, moving closer to now, when you had the opportunity to, when when the opportunity came to run the good fight, that you had to take big swings on it to make it different, to do something different for yourselves? I'm nodding yes and you're nodding no. Well, I mean... (laughs) Should we go for a walk? Yeah, maybe. (laughs) I, just speaking for myself, I don't start from that sort of distance to it, and it's more okay. What's going? What's? How do we make this setting different from The Good Wife? How do we make this a truly different show? And have fun with it, and just start from there. And for us, for me, 
CBS All Access was a new thought. It was untested. And if it was going to work at all, it was actually really blowing things up, which, you know, was the opening credit sequence. Yeah. We just started to blow shit up. It's, it's on the nose. It tells you what <laughs> yeah. you're in for, right? right? So and I it's think. It's beautiful, too. It's really cool. Thank you. Uh, the, the, anyway, that was, I thought we had to make big noise. Even this season, you know, we did an episode about finding the golden shower tape and things like that. The more it felt, one of the problems I think Network has is it doesn't seem like it can be divisive, doesn't feel like it can mm-hmm. throw big bombs. Yeah. So that was the good thing about going to Good Fight where you could prove that you could. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I want to ask very briefly about your writer's room on The Good Fight and were people ported over from the previous show? Was this an all new room uh, and, and does it function differently? It is an all new room, isn't it? Well, it's half brain dead, half good fight. But, oh, but right. No, oh, interesting. Yeah, but no one from The Good Wife, mm-hmm. which That's was... That's right. Because there's so much great television being produced, none of the Good Wife folks yeah. were available. They're all off making their own shows they're or making, being yeah. number twos on shows. Yeah. yeah, so they're doing wonderfully well. So it was about finding a new group of writers. And also, the, we were moving the writers' room to New York. Second season. Second season. Mm-hmm. So it was, a lot of it was starting or, or seeing who we could transfer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, New York has all these playwrights and bringing in playwrights. In. Oh, that's really cool. I'm curious yeah. about that. Like, did you find different kinds of voices? Did you find, you know, a, a diversity in experience that maybe you didn't have before? The difference is main, they're, because this show is being written in New York, there are more playwrights. Mm-hmm. That's the big difference. The, there, there isn't the depth of TV experience sure. with yeah, yeah. Uh, the Good Fight writers as there was. Because with a lot of the Good Wife writers, you know, that show was maybe the eighth or tenth show right. they'd been on. So do like, you... Sorry, go ahead. No, lot writers were coming from Lost. Right. They were, you know, there, there was probably more sense of TV as a lived experience, and these were people growing up loving TV. Now with good fight writers, I think a lot of them more grew up loving theater. That's really interesting. Do you find yourselves having to do a little crash course in what is TV, or does is no. there no difference? No, it's storytelling. Not really, do it's you, it's smart people. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, right. th- these we're are the stupidest people in the room. <laughs> but oh my easily. god! So, and that's the best case scenario. Yeah, yeah. it really is. Teach us. Yeah. We're not going to teach you shit. That's great. Teach us. Um, we'll just wrap up uh, by asking, what is next? You're, you're working on a third season yes. right, of Good Fight. Uh, is there a timeline on that yet? Uh, the writers will probably get back to work at the end of August. All right. And is there stuff that you are excited to bring to this? You know, it, does it feel like starting from scratch every year? Or have you started talking between yourselves about we were, what we want to do? Yeah, one of the things is trying to give some analysis of why the country is where it is. Mm-hmm. And one of the things you have to put your finger at is entertainment. Mm-hmm. That, in fact, are we moved to a post-factual world, partly because of what we do, mm-hmm. which is create stories that are more interesting than facts. And you find that the case even with the current administration. It often finds that it can change the subject by throwing a new... It's not... It's not even wrong wrong that a lot of editorials point to the Trump administration as a cast member that had to be removed or, you know, a, a good yeah. season ender. Yeah. So a lot of the metaphors being taken from TV. So next season, 
we were thinking of it being a, a meta criticism of entertainment. Oh, that's really and to see that as a way to look at the world and is there any way to still enjoy entertainment but not define politics and the world through it? Mm -hmm. So that's it. I mean, it's a very esoteric sounding, but you usually really have to neat. start in the esoteric to yeah, move towards the concrete. Sure. And it sounds like you both are in a maybe unique position to comment on both of those things. You know, being outside of Los Angeles, having a writer's room outside of Los Angeles, you might have a different perspective on the television or the entertainment business. I hope so, Michelle. <laughs> yeah, you, no. We well, we were in Los Angeles until two years ago, so sure. I, it feels very much we're in that swim. But you both know it, and now have a little distance yeah. from it, where, and love it. So <laughs> you, yeah. yeah, yeah, love it, and I'm sure, like so many of us, fear it and hate it as well. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Depends on the day, right? Exactly. <laughs> uh, let me ask you what you are watching on television these days. What is getting you excited or inspired? What are you talking about with each other and your friends? I watch everything. So what I'm enjoying, I loved Twin Peaks last year. I mm -hmm. thought that was the thing people will remember 50 mm -hmm. years from now. The Terror is incredible on AMC. If anybody hasn't seen it, they should see it. Totally. Um, what I'm just started watching was um, Cobra. What is it? Cobra uh, Kai. Cobra Kai. Cobra Kai the YouTube which series. is very clever. Is it? Uh, I haven't watched it yet. Oh, you you should watch. I'm mean, only the first two episodes are free. Watch that and yeah. see what you like. The Looping Tower has some really great performances okay. and so good. And then. Yeah, I was going to say, and I tend to like to watch the comedies as just mm -hmm. something completely different than what we're doing. And, you know, Bob's Burgers seems, seems to always come up on my That's screen. And then uh, going backwards, the IT crowd, I'm just starting to watch. Oh, yeah. oh, um, you know, I'm, our daughter th shows us incredible episodes. And then we'd start filling in our, <laughs> right. our education through her. But there's so much out there, right? There's yeah, so there's much so out there. Much. And it's, you don't so have to go back. Yeah. Yes. And it's the history of television is now available. And yeah. it's coming down. You know, it's you imagine I always read about 70s movie making and how. Mm -hmm. But yeah. this feels like a time when people are really challenged by each other's advances. For sure. And want to do unique stuff as much as they can well please know that you all are a part of it that you are inspiring you. people to go make thank better you. and cooler and you know more interesting and deeper things so thank, thank you, you guys thanks thank for talking thank you thank you for listening to the writers panel tune in next tuesday and every tuesday for a brand new episode and in the meantime please subscribe and review the writers panel on apple podcasts or on your favorite podcast app and follow me on twitter at ben blacker just like it sounds and let me know who you want to have on the show. The Writers' Panel is a co-production of the Forever Dog Podcast Network and the ATX Television Festival. You can listen to more Forever Dog podcasts at foreverdogpodcast.com and keep up with the ATX Fest throughout the year at atxfestival.com. Thank you, and see you next week. Well, you'll hear me next week. Thanks for subscribing. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook.